You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. This is this is Dr. Santosh, and if you can hear me, this around the world in 80 plagues is my dying confession. <laughs> uh, I guess I have something to be thankful for, and that's time for another one of our around the world in 80 plagues. In one of these days, we're going to get real sound effects. Listening audience, I'm lying to him. We're never getting real sound effects. <laughs> You're just like teasing me with the with the possibility. As you noted, it is time for an 80 plagues. Have we done one this season yet? I, I don't think we have so far. Um, I it, This is obviously it's one of my favorites because, you know, it's infectious diseases. Um, I, Listening I audience at home, you're in for a treat. <laughs> because while Santosh has the mm. plague... We're actually going to cover a very different one. And because it's Thanksgiving, I want to tie it all together. So I'm going to give you a plague that helped the pilgrims. Yeah, well, and no, not, not the smallpox good, blankets. Good way. Yeah, yeah, that one was different. Let's let's take it back to our pilgrim days, get in the way back machine. And in the winter of 1620, the Mayflower happened to dock at an abandoned village known in the local Wampanoag language as Patuxet. You know, kind of like Puxatani Phil. Pilgrims rejoiced. Yay! Yeah. The land hath been planted <laughs> with corn three or like four it. years ago, and there is a very sweet brook that runs under the hillside. That sure was the pilgrims landing and there being, you know, a ready-made village waiting for them, wasn't it? I, I don't recall that being mentioned in my history books. So that was yeah, described I, I by French explorer Samuel de yeah. Champlain, and he had observed what would become Plymouth Harbor 15 years earlier. So where had all the people gone? Because the pilgrims are sitting there busy thanking God and unaware that the previous tenants had died gruesome, infectious. You know, there wasn't really, you know, email 
or even an underwater telegraph cable at this point. So if you want to... I mean, there. if you listen to the birds closely enough, there was a Twitter. Ah, is a Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, uh, if you wanted news from overseas, you had to friggin' go overseas. There was no... There was no way around that. Just a few short months later, in spring, the pilgrims finally met their surviving neighbors. And if the colonists thought God was good for guiding them to like pre-farmed land, a pre-village, a sweet brook, they were even more thankful when people just strolled into their midst, smiling and saying in English, welcome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Baffling, right? Because these weren't people that looked like them. To be fair, this might be the very beginning of the American uh, tourism method of speak loud and slow. Yeah. <laughs> because a bunch of people they had never seen before did, in fact, understand them and speak their language. Sure, sure. And uh, honestly, like, this should have baffled them just a little bit. Well, right up until those same natives who walked up to the pilgrims told them, hey, do you guys know that this village that you're living in everyone who used to live here died of an extraordinary plague and the one who told them that was a native by the name of tisquantum who you may be more familiar with by the name squanto it's not even really anglicized it's just shortened for our convenience type of thing the reason squanto was able to tell them all of this is because he had been abducted by the english about five or six years earlier Taken uh-huh. away to be yeah. trained as a delightfully educated savage and therefore uh-huh. missed out on the epidemic that kills entire. So, you know, six up, half a dozen down. I don't, I don't know that the math quite adds up there. But yeah, this was, you know, this was ahead of the time of the whole, you know, kill the Indian, save the child stuff where kids were being abducted. But there was still this horrible idea that oh if if you take the native out of the the person then you'll be able to civilize them into you know what they consider to be the right type of human the kind that misses the extinction uh, of his village we're getting into all kinds of like no territory so there's Uh, and we're sorry to bump you guys out telling the pilgrims hey guys as a thanks for enslaving me i just wanted to let you know you're on the side of a giant mass extinction, most notably of my people. Yeah. To which the pilgrims replied, the pilgrim leader yeah. Bradford replied, oh, hmm, yes, we are in fact already aware of the death toll from Indian fever. That's right. This was, you know, you're still kind of in the age of miasma. We don't have any germ theory yet. So diseases were either named after where it came from uh, or like in the case of malaria, where they thought it came from bad air, or the people well, that it came William from. Well, William Bradford so noted this one when he fever. arrived, his scouts had ventured uh, inland yeah. and had described to him skulls and bones found in many places lying still above the ground where the houses and dwellings had been. Hmm, a very sad spectacle to behold, he said to himself, I presume, as he kicked the bones out of the way and moved to the abandoned houses. Uh And it is estimated that due to the disease we're going to cover Uh in today's 80 plagues, as many as 9 out of 10 coastal first Americans, coastal Indians, whatever you want to call them, were killed in the epidemic between 1616 
1619. So, what does this Thanksgiving, Squanto, and Rat Urine all have in common? 1616 <laughs> to 1619. Oh. Three years, cleared out the coast, cleaned it up for the pilgrims to land. The symptoms were a yellowing of the skin, pain and cramping, okay. and profuse bleeding, especially okay. from the nose. All right, so we've got a couple of culprits here, right? Um, one of them could be something like yellow fever. Yellow fever can give you a hemorrhagic picture along with the yellowing of the skin is most likely jaundice, right? Uh, where the liver is having trouble processing bilirubin. Um, and you've got a, a rapid kind of decline in the absence of what we have today, which is support from, you know, intensive care units and that kind of a thing. So number one I'm thinking of here might be okay. something like, you know, hemorrhagic and jaundice causing. Number two, uh, you can get something called Wheels disease. W That's not W-H-E-E-L. It's W-E-I-L. Uh, so you can get Wheels syndrome and then, it, it, you know, you, you first contract it and then you have this, uh, this cluster uh, where you have problems with your liver, with your clotting, you get headaches and chills. Um, now, you didn't mention that there was anything wrong with... I'll tell you that poor Squanto died of the same disease that took his village only 15 years later. He happened to die coincidentally. It was not that long an incubation period. And he also had extremely bloodshot eyes. Oh, okay. All right. So this was something which was hemorrhagic, um, but was also causing a lot of end organ damage. Um, but it, you're, what we're saying is it, it wasn't 15 years of incubation, but he, he came back into contact with his village. Uh, and then he died from the same thing, which means it doesn't have to incubate, but it's got to stick around and propagate at least um, for a little bit in the environment. Um, so that uh, I'm, I'm less worried about viruses if he was like a lone sufferer, thinking more bacteria. Um, there's a few other. And that's what we're covering today, folks. Leptospirosis. He said as if anyone should be familiar with it. <laughs> Symptoms of leptospirosis have One changed over time. Episodes. Initially, while nosebleeds were no, the hallmark, was, was uh, now extremely yeah. bloodshot eyes is considered to be yeah. the signature of the disease, along with severe hemorrhaging in the lungs, which is seen pretty frequently, such as in a 1995 outbreak in Nicaragua. In rare cases, it can even enter the brain. But most of the time, the bacteria are too busy destroying your tissue to sneak their way into your spinal fluid. What you're saying is you can have lingering disease going on if, if you kind of partially treat it. But what happens more frequently is renal, liver, and respiratory collapse. The main reasons that this disease was so prevalent is, or at least at that time, is lots of people back then were living under conditions of extreme hardship and what would be considered today's standards, poverty. And this is another disease, much like gout is a disease of the rich, leptospirosis is a disease frequently seen in the poor, and its main reservoir is hiding in rat kidneys. Yeah, yeah. And that was the that was actually the hint um, that was in that episode of House 
is that uh, someone noticed that when the urine from an infected patient, uh, because this is how Leptospira gets around, uh, it's zoonotic, it can infect things other than humans, and it, it gets around that way. When, some, when the urine contacted the skin, shortly afterwards on the skin where they, you know, the urine uh, kind of splashed on there, there was a rash, a new rash that popped up. Before we go into some of the other history aspects of this, let's talk very briefly about, or before we go into the symptoms, let's talk a little bit more about the history. The very first time Leptospira was observed or I should say it was initially described by, as you mentioned earlier, Santosh, Dr. Wheel, Adolf Wheel at Heidelberg University in 1886. Yeah, diff- different Adolf. Right. It, back <laughs> then, it was a popular name. <laughs> Dr. Wheel described four patients who had yellowing of the skin, abnormal muscle spasms, along with an enlarged liver and kidney disorder. Uh, but they all recovered. A few, yes. a few decades later, in 1907, a scientist, Stimson, took a, tig- a slice of kidney from a patient who had died and observed actual bacteria that he hadn't seen before. And he called them Spirochita interrogans. <laughs> And he called them Spirochita interrogans because the bacteria resembled a tiny little question mark. And he's like, what's this? So it was the quest disease. Even though it had been identified, it wasn't associated with anything yet. However, in 1917, Hideo Noguchi, Hidego Noguchi, a Japanese bacteriologist working mm-hmm. in America, called the genus Leptospira, which means small coil and unaware of the Japanese group's work, two German groups simultaneously published their first demonstration of this same disease. So we've taken it from, you know, Thanksgiving, Pilgrim era, all the way up to, uh, oh, just after World War One. Yeah, uh, there, there was a big gap in there because, you know, germ theory uh, needed to come around and we needed to actually incorporate we needed to incorporate the fact that these microscopic organisms cause disease and why they cause disease and how they did it. Um, and when that picture was finally put together, you know, way after Leeuwenhoek and all these kind of things, not way, but a little kind of in the same thing, you finally got people going after diseases and symptoms which seem to be due to infection and then looking under the microscope and trying to find a cause. So they were looking for the agent of this particular syndrome, which was, you know, something that would happen in epidemic proportions in poor areas, shut down the liver, hurt the kidneys, blow out the lungs, cause a bunch of bleeding and then death. And you had these postulates by Dr. Cook, right? He put them together and he said, hey, if you find something that replicates itself over and over from human to human, and then you find the presence of the same agent, it's very possible that that agent is the cause of Now, disease. remember how I told you the Japanese and, and boom, the Germans discovered it simultaneously. Yeah, we uh, Western medicine is so well full. <laughs> that as a result, the disease went by many names until ridiculous. we settled on leptospirosis. And a couple of them I just thought were fun. So, yeah, the Germans called it Schlammfieber or mud, 
or mud fever yeah, go for it. by because uh, they found it yeah. most often in the stress. Whereas the Japanese yeah. call it Akiyami or autumn fever, the falling leaves disease. Right. And that one still kind of hangs around, uh, autumn fever. Uh, in, in Southeastern Asian countries and in Oceania, uh, Leptospira would come with the monsoons. So it'd come with the wet season because if you had standing water, puddles and puddles where you know, small animals would piss into these things. And then you'd get the bacteria by stepping into these contaminated puddles or drinking from these uh, water sources. You'd get sick in droves, now, especially if you contaminated. A Santos, this is source. one of your favorites is not only is it a plague, it's a zoonosis. It, it is a zoonosis. <laughs> yeah. So you always have to step back and say, you know, well, we humans are so cool and everything, but you know, we're just another organism in the environment. And we interact with all these other organisms, both large and small. And this particular bug is so mostly rats and rat kidneys, though, that it can infect many different types of mammals, not just hominids. <laughs> mostly rats and rat kidneys. So we usually do find something with pathogens called what's a definitive host. Um, for instance, with Toxoplasma, it's cats. Um, <laughs> Bartonella is another one. It's cats. Uh, cats cause a lot of disease is what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, no, you, uh, rodentia rodents do have a lot of these diseases uh, being the definitive host for these diseases. They carry them for place to place. Then humans and other mammals turn into what are called accidental hosts. And when you have that cycle going on, the problem that happens is unlike something like say measles, or polio, where it's only a human host and you can get rid of it by just taking care of the humans. In this particular case, you have to take care of other animals in the environment that can be carriers or vectors for this disease. Now, the main host, as Santosh said, is the black rat, Rattus Rattus. You know, the rat's so nice, <laughs> they named it twice. <laughs> it's not that one and then the mouse you know the mus musculus well for un, for reasons we don't entirely understand the black rat you know the pokemon ratus ratus is the only animal whose kidney can sustain continuous ongoing leptospira infections humans are a dead end and if we're sustaining an infection for that long in our kidneys we'll be simply dead however our kidneys aren't really set up as the right environment for the bacteria to multiply. They're very rapidly killed by an acidic pH and salt water. So this came over on the Mayflower as well as all the other ships. And like colonies at Jamestown, Roanoke, <laughs> and Popham, the bacteria normally get ambushed by the immune system or they die of starvation and infection is cleared within a month if it doesn't kill you. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. I say if it doesn't kill you because it's really, really infectious. Just 10 bacteria, 10 individual teeny itty bitty little bacteria injected into the belly will send a laboratory hamster to a violently hemorrhagic death within days. <laughs> Just you, you said that with such a deadpan delivery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite horrific. Um, now, the nice thing, as you said, if the patient in, in the modern day and age, even if they don't get the appropriate antibiotic, um, if they sometimes if they just get fluid support, so they get to an intensive care unit and they get uh, 
intravenous fluids, oxygen, that kind of thing, they can quote unquote ride out the disease um, and the immune system can clear it. But as you can imagine, the mortality is much higher without it. Why does it cause all this violent hemorrhage? Well, I have a theory and then Santos will tell you the actual science. (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 no. What? You don't need a theory. You, you look, Santosh. You don't need Santosh. a theory. There's facts. We have facts. If you look at spirochetes, oh, which, as we said, are small <laughs> coils under the microscope, they look like tiny little handlebar mustaches. Yeah. And oh, in order God. to move through your body, they spin <laughs> one end of their twisty little mustache, you know, like a snidely whiplash and that lets them swim oh faster and then they kind of bore in both the hipster and the drilling sense into these cells and infect them which will you lead to death am i close <laughs> but they tunnel through organs and cells not even to avoid the immune system <laughs> so they like to keep it on the down low oh my god <laughs> This is so dumb. They're All not- right. So how does <laughs> leptospirosis no, actually not, work? No. All right. So uh, we have our animal reservoirs, as we talked about. So there's asymptomatic renal colonization uh, in in the mice. Or sorry, in the rats, and then. It does uh, pass on. It can pass on to other animals. It's actually, believe it or not, it's a VD. It's an STI. It's a little rat sex. Ah, you dirty rat. um, Yeah, it's a sexually transmitted infection. Um, That can happen in other animals as well, um, but not in humans as far as we can see. Um, But we do have asymptomatic renal colonization very uncommonly um, in humans. So it, it does need to be treated. But after it kind of uh, takes a hold. The the leptospires do have all of the bad things that bacteria have, which they shed lipopolysaccharide, which sets off our cytokines, kind of collateral damage as we're trying to fight the bacteria that we suffer organ damage because our immune system kind of goes haywire and starts blowing everything the hell up. And so we, uh, we know that they have that. They have these extracellular components. They can bind to different cell types and invade our our cells and start to destroy them. Um, and then uh, our immune system gets upramped at the same time that the, the bacteria are causing destruction. If you have a especially high bacterial load, if you're already sick to start with, um, these uh, all of these proteins that the leptospira secrete outer membrane proteins stimulates this horrible antibody response, which can be good, uh, but can also elicit our immune system to go haywire. And then, you know, all of a sudden you start getting hemolytic anemia, your red cells start ripping themselves apart. Uh, the leptospira themselves have what's called a hemolysin. They, they blow up red blood cells. Um, we use up our platelets as we respond to sepsis. Uh, there's capillary injury, which causes leakage of blood and fluid to get out into our tissues rather than staying in our bloodstream. Um, and then it goes to work uh, destroying our kidneys. Um, there's infiltration of all of our immune cells while it's trying to fight the leptospira, which accelerates uh, our kidney damage. Um, and then 
we get bleeding into our lungs as we lose platelets, as there's more cytokine storm. Um, our heart gives out because it runs out of volume to pump. Um, and then if we're really in bad shape, just to, you know, you talked about the neuro stuff before, is that uh, we can have this meningitis it gets to our brain, which is actually not always due to invasion of the leptospira into our meninges in our brain, but actually a hyperimmune response between the antigens of leptospira and our antibodies. Um, and that's it. Your, your organs slowly fail, liver, kidneys. Um, you know, once those things start to go down, you're in bad shape. And then well, finally you'll run out of volume in your blood vessels as everything leaks out, your heart gives out and you bleed into your lungs and you can't breathe and you die. <laughs> yeah. So you, you have anecteric leptospirosis where, you know, that's 90% of people that it doesn't attack the, the liver and you can still have circulatory collapse and everything, but you don't get jaundiced or you can have the wheel syndrome, the green eyes and the yellow skin. And the incubate, the incubation period, if you catch this is usually about seven to 12 days, but it can see it onset in as few as two days or as long as a month. So the meningitis, although it's terribly, terribly, dangerous you actually have a pretty good chance of recovering from it now with modern antibiotics back then not so much uh then of course santosh you mentioned the jaundice and renal failure which is wheels disease or just most people get a mild illness that's it you'll have a fever for a few yes. days some generalized muscle aches uh with bloodshot eyes which is as i said the most common presenting sign of the mm -hmm. disease today and there's often a headache as well, usually at the frontal or temple regions with a throbbing pain. It can present almost like a migraine with a sensitivity to light. And the, incub the incubation period, if you catch this, is usually about 7 to 12 days. But it can set, it can, uh, you can see it onset in as few as two days or as long as a month. So the meningitis... Although it's terribly, terribly dangerous, you actually have a pretty good chance of recovering from it now with modern antibiotics. Back then, not so much. Uh, then, of course, Santosh, you mentioned the jaundice and renal failure, which is Wheels disease. Or just most people get a mild illness. That's it. You'll have a fever for a few days, some generalized muscle aches uh, with bloodshot eyes, which is, as I said, the most common presenting sign of the disease today and there's often a headache as well usually at the frontal or temple regions with a throbbing pain it can present almost like a migraine with a sensitivity to light all right okay so you you do have some things to kind of distinguish it and this is the tough part right distinguishing it from other diseases which can also cause fever and jaundice and hemorrhage. Um, you know, I mentioned dengue fever, yellow fever. Um, you know, if you're out in Africa, um, there's a few hemorrhagic fevers that kind of fall into the differential diagnosis like Lassa fever and Ebola. Um, there's not 
perfect overlap between all of those diseases, um, but it is something that we have to think about um, when you have by and large patients who are traveling and then come back with fever and some of these symptoms. You know, why would the Japanese and the Germans find this first before anyone else? Well, it was common among people who had professions or jobs that brought them into contact with contaminated water or mm-hmm. animal urine. Remember those that, radis? Remember those radis radis? Yeah. So, you know, just like you said, mud fever, European swamp fever, um, pea pickers disease, uh, because the peas and uh, to some extent rice patties, I'm surprised it wasn't part of rice patties also. Anywhere where you had to wade through or go through standing water. You know, like the Ninja Turtles in the sewers would have all died of leptospirosis from Master Splinter. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they saw this kind of coming and going. There is actually another name that came by, which was called like the seven day fever in Japan, because this particular disease, you know, I, I described kind of the worst of it. But like you said, people can recover, but they would have sustained illness for a really long time for like a full week where they'd be just feeling like crap and have a crappy headache. They wouldn't have respiratory symptoms like the flu, um, but they just go days and days with fever before they got better. Now, while it used to be seen in these sewage workers or rice paddy workers or things like that, now that people are more aware of leptospirosis, incidence has declined due to just wearing protective clothing. And most of the cases today Are people engaged in water sports like swimming or those returning from a backpack holiday in the tropics? And funnily enough, our own inclination to pollute has decreased the likelihood of leptospirosis as the presence in (laughs) wastewater of detergents and detergent-like products is thought to have reduced the survival in the sewers since you can inhibit them at low detergent concentrations due to their pH sensitivity. (laughs) This is the most like horribly ironic thing. Yeah. They, these things are fragile. Thankfully, they're not like, uh, E. coli, which can last in, in large quantities, even in a little bit of detergent. Um, they're not spore formers like clostridia. Um, they are very, very delicate once they get into the environment. So, If you have a decrease of the amount of the reservoir animals, so like rats and rodents, and then you destroy it in the environment because we just like spill pretty much just soap, right? Just just soap uh, out into your sewers and stuff. Now you reduce it. Uh, We have done a couple of other things, Josh. Uh, We do have an immunization. um, So... It's only for animals so far, but you know, if you get your pets immunized against Leptospira, now you Let's cut talk, down the well, reservoir. Even we'll we'll more. come back to that in a moment. The other thing I wanted to mention is remember how I called it earlier autumn. Well, it's only really autumn fever in Japan, yes, because the number of cases increases during rainy season in the tropics, and then late summer or early fall in Western countries. So it follows essentially the monsoon, and this happens because, as we said. Leptospheres survive best in fresh water, damp, basic soil. Soil, you basic. Vegetation, <laughs> warm mud, which means yeah, people at risk during floods, such well. as those 
sweeping the Bahamas as well as uh, Puerto Rico um, following hurricanes can in fact be at huge risk for it. Even though the illness hasn't been reportable since 1994, meaning we don't have to notify the Center for Disease Control when we find a case, it was reinstated as a nationally notifiable disease in the United States in 2000. So this is what, again, it's another climate change affected. It, it definitely is. And one of the big reasons why it rose up is in the United States is really due to just like a couple of states. I just read an article that said uh, Hawaii has the highest proportion of sexually transmitted infections of the states. And all I can say is, way to go, you guys. You took the title back from Florida. So let's talk about treatment. You mentioned earlier that there are treatments available for animals, and it sure would be great if we had a vaccine to treat this highly infectious disease. And we do, kind of. It's only available for animals, pigs, dogs, cattle, sheep, and goats. Um, (laughs) Well, in case you were feeling jealous that animals get a shot that you don't, even though there's no vaccine available for humans in the U.S., it is currently available in Cuba and China. And the reason vaccines are so limited is they really only protect well against a single kind of leptospirosis. And vaccines for animals usually contain uh, the one most likely to infect that animal. So if we knew which one the rats in your area were carrying, we'd have a much more effective vaccine. Thankfully, most cases, as we mentioned, do resolve spontaneously, even though early initiation of antibiotics may prevent it progressing to disease, like the lung hemorrhages or more severe kidney infections. So once you suspect it, you should start treating for it. And what would make you suspect it? Again, are you talking about a job that works in standing water that may be contaminated is coming into contact with a lot of animals or animal urine is in a recent tropical or flood area. So let's talk about why we suspect it was leptospirosis that wiped out the Native Americans before the pilgrims landed. The infection is carried in water and the Wampanoag which is Squanto's tribe, spent most of their time bathing, fishing, hunting, and being in nature than the pilgrims, who liked to basically have their log cabins, Netflix, and chill. Wampanoag have long, long seasonal fests of giving thanks, one of which celebrates the cranberry harvest. And there is some evidence that cranberries were used medicinally, uh, such as ground into a poultice and put on wounds. We've covered the cranberry effects or will cover the medicinal effects of cranberries in our Thanksgiving Journal Club. The more leptospira that initially invade the bloodstream because the cranberries are grown in heavy standing water and the leptospira could infect, therefore, the cranberry plants and the cranberries were then used as medicine in people who were spending a lot of time in water. So direct contact with the berries may have made that. And that's an excellent place to end this week's Thanksgiving edition of Around the World in 80 Plagues. This week, know just the tip as you should be spending the holiday with your families if you are in a country that celebrates it. If not, go spend time with your families anyway, however you choose to celebrate. Have a wonderful one. This. And we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. 
If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with any resources we used researching this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, happy travels, you guys. No, no lollipop. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.